everyone. Welcome to Crime Colts and Coffee. I'm Bryn. And before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to make a couple recommendations for you guys. I don't know if I've mentioned these in the past. I may or may not have, but I'll mention them again because I just started season two of the show that I'm going to mention called One of Us is Lying. It's on Peacock. I'm pretty positive I mentioned that, but season two just came out maybe five months ago or so, and I just started it, and it is incredible. So highly recommend that show. Also, if you haven't listened to the podcast called Against the Odds, that podcast also comes with a very high recommendation from me. There are so many different seasons. I think they're up to 19 or 20 seasons of that podcast now, and each one is completely different, and it's covered incredibly, and Each story is just so unique and so different from the other. Definitely give that podcast a listen. So I think I will get straight into my coffee review because I'm not really sure what else to talk about at the moment and you guys are probably like just get into it anyway. So the coffee that I'm reviewing today we had reviewed in the past twice I believe from this coffee company La Colombe. And each time, I'm pretty positive we gave it really good reviews. This coffee is incredible. It's canned coffee, and that is what I think makes it even more incredible because it's canned coffee, but it is so good. So the La Colombe that I'm reviewing today is a hazelnut latte, and I think Kelsey and I had mentioned them having a hazelnut latte in the past, but we had never reviewed it. So this hazelnut latte, it is a cold hazelnut latte. As I mentioned, it was canned, so it was in the fridge. And it's nice and creamy. It has a really nice hazelnut undertone to it where it's not too sweet and it's not too fake tasting. I think that it also has a stronger side to it where... I don't think it's technically a dark roast, but it tastes like it might be on the darker side or just leans towards almost an espresso kind of feel to it. I really like this one, especially because it's hazelnut and anyone who's listened for a while knows I love my hazelnut coffee and my hazelnut creamer and everything hazelnut as long as it's not too sweet or fake tasting. So I'd have to rate this one probably... In comparison to other canned coffees or store-bought coffees that I've had, maybe an eight and a half. And in comparison to getting fresh grounds from your local roaster and favorite coffee shop, I'd say maybe seven and a half. So it still is rated pretty high in my books. Overall, let's say an eight. We'll call it an eight. I really enjoy this one, especially as an on-the-go coffee, even though this is a roaster and they do provide freshly ground beans and such on their site. So that shows how amazing their coffee is that their canned coffee can taste just as good. La Colombe, as always, love you. Amazing. And we'll be drinking more from you. I'm sure I'll be reviewing more on this podcast. So without further ado, I'll get into today's case. So grab your coffee and have a morning with us. Today's case was suggested by Kaylee, so thank you Kaylee for sending this one in. 
I'm going to be discussing the case of Ellen Greenberg. Ellen was born Ellen Ray Greenberg in New York, New York on June 23, 1983. She was 27 years old at the time of this story. Her mom's name is Sandra, aka Sandy Greenberg, and her maiden name was Reuben. Her dad's name is Joshua Greenberg, and Ellen was an only child. She was described as being very bubbly, and she had lived in Harrisburg, PA, before moving to Philadelphia, PA. Ellen taught first grade at Juniana Park Academy in Philadelphia, PA, and she was engaged to a man named Samuel or Sam Goldberg. They had been together for three years, and they lived together in an apartment in Maniunk. This is a neighborhood in Lower Northwest Philadelphia. Sam worked as a television producer for NBC, based out of Gladwin, PA, and later at Golf.com. So January 26, 2011, a blizzard hit Philadelphia, so Ellen actually had to leave work early. They called an early dismissal for her school due to inclement weather. From her school, she stopped for gas and then headed back to her apartment. At 4.45 p.m., Ellen's fiancé, Sam, went to the gym. He got back to their apartment around 30 minutes later. It was not clarified whether the gym was located inside their apartment complex, but due to the short time lapse, I'm thinking it might have been, or was at least very close by. Otherwise, why would you be at the gym and back within about 30 minutes? The door of the apartment was locked from the inside, one article described it as the swing lock being activated from the inside. Sam began yelling to Ellen, but she didn't respond. And this is a quote from Oxygen.com. Quote, Over the course of more than 20 minutes, Goldberg sent a series of increasingly frantic texts to his fiance's phone. According to articles, it's said that Sam had to break down the door to get inside some state that a building attendant was with him when he did this, but information has been disputed surrounding this, which I will get into later on. By 6.33 p.m., officers had responded to the apartment, and around 6.40 p.m., Ellen had been pronounced dead. She was found in the kitchen of her apartment by Sam, and this had been after he broke in. She had 20 stab wounds, and this included 10 to her neck and back. She also had 11 bruises in different stages of healing. These were on her abdomen, right leg, and right arm. A 10-inch serrated steak knife was found still stuck a couple inches into her chest. So moving on to the investigation, because I personally think there is a lot to investigate with that. The crime scene was treated as a suicide, even without knowing what had definitively happened to Ellen. And you're probably all like, what the actual fuck is going on? And if you're not, your mind might just be swirling because I was in pretty much shock when I read that. This was apparently because of the door being locked from the inside. There were also, quote, no signs of an intruder and Greenberg had no defensive wounds, police have said. 
That was a quote from the Inquirer. Members of law enforcement have since stepped forward to explain that absence of a struggle can actually happen when someone is taken by complete surprise in an attack. So that could potentially explain that, in Ellen's case, why she would have no defensive wounds if she was basically blitz-attacked and didn't even have time to defend herself. Just pointing out as well that there was no suicide note left at her apartment or anything related to suicide found on her computer, and that was in 2011 reports. I'm also going to just pause and speculate for a second on how somebody would consciously inflict that many bruises on themselves and how these bruises would be at all different stages of healing, not to mention how someone would stab themselves that many times in and in their own back and neck without succumbing to their injuries first. Again, this is me speculating, and I don't have any medical or forensics background, but that just seems out there to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. A small personal fact I'd also like to mention about Ellen, her parents said she was too squeamish to even pierce her ears a second time. Apparently, the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office also had similar thoughts at first because after conducting an autopsy on Ellen, they initially ruled it a homicide. But the very next day, the Philadelphia Police Department disputed that by stating, quote, The death of Ellen Greenberg has not been ruled a homicide. Homicide investigators are considering the manner of death as suspicious at this time. And that was a quote from Wiki. Even with the statement of considering things suspicious, articles suggest that police were leaning towards suicide. Reports say that at some point they had also been looking into alleged quote-unquote mental issues which I feel is a really insensitive way of referring to someone's potential struggle with mental health, especially if they're thinking this person could have died from this. Not to mention, it seems as though blinders were put on very early on in this investigation and case, but I digress. Neighbors were interviewed and lobby surveillance cameras were checked, turning up nothing suspicious. Neighbors said that they hadn't heard anything out of the ordinary, and there was no one else's DNA found at the scene. So making it even more strange and harder to figure out. Sam Goldberg, remember who was Ellen's fiance, had also been interviewed and was released by police. He was fully cooperative with the investigation. Aside from the front door of their apartment, there was one other entrance to potentially get into the apartment. This would be their apartment balcony that was six floors up. The snow by this balcony was checked for footprints, but there weren't any, which I'd like to know how soon after it was checked, because remember, there was a blizzard happening. And her fiancé left at 4.45 for the gym, and she wasn't pronounced dead until around, like, at least 6.40.
that's at least two hours, give or take, for a blizzard to cover up those footprints. Not to mention, I doubt the investigators ran outside as soon as they arrived to look. So probably more than at least three hours had passed during a blizzard for these footprints to be covered up. So I don't know how much they can really rely on there being no footprints. At some point, the ruling was reversed. And February 2011, so a month or less later, it was officially ruled a suicide. An article from Oxygen stated March 7th, 2011 as the date of the medical examiner's office overturning her death to suicide. So not sure whether this was conflicting information or the time it took from being ruled by the police as such and being officially filed in reports. But either way, it was officially listed as that. There was no explanation provided to Ellen's family for the change in ruling, which is so beyond fucked up how, number one, the family wouldn't be provided with that information or a simple explanation of why the ruling changed from homicide to suicide, and number two, how they were just expected to accept that. Is, is beyond me. So where was Ellen's happiness and mental health at when she died? What I'm going to speak about is from the perspective of the family and what I could find online regarding it. So give or take, this is about where Ellen's mental health was believed to be at. She was planning her wedding, and she seemingly had a great support system between her family and fiancé. This is a quote from Oxygen.com, quote, Ellen's mother told police she had been, quote-unquote, struggling with something, and was seeing a psychiatrist who had prescribed her a range of pharmaceuticals, but at no point did her family ever think she was suicidal. A toxicology report showed traces of medication in her system when she died. There was Zolpidem, which is a sedative and sleep aid, and Clonazepam, which is an anti-anxiety medication. Ellen's career was thriving. She was loved by students and staff. However, she reportedly had some work-related anxiety. The medical examiner's report stated she was quote-unquote overwhelmed with her classroom work and quote-unquote insecure and not sure of herself. So coming from a past teacher's point of view, I can completely understand the work-related anxiety and meeting deadlines and the expectations that students are expected to meet and that teachers are expected to meet and how she could be stressed out and anxious. Believe me, when I was teaching, I absolutely adored my kids, but I did go home crying once in a while and feeling depressed once in a while and definitely had anxiety once in a while from my job. And that had nothing to do with my children, everything to do with the paperwork and just the stressors that come along with being a teacher. So I can completely see her perspective on that, and just life in general. People can have anxiety. I have anxiety. I've talked about it on the podcast. That does not mean that she was having 
suicidal ideations or suicidal thoughts. And according to her family, they didn't see any signs of that. So, even with these anxieties, her family described her as being happy. At some point before she died, though, Ellen's parents said that she had mentioned temporarily moving back to her home in Harrisburg, PA. So, this was the home of her parents. She was still wedding planning during this time, and Ellen said it had nothing to do with Sam. This is what her parents had relayed. Moving into the aftermath, Ellen's parents, Sandra and Joshua Greenberg, didn't and don't believe that their daughter committed suicide. Aside from knowing her best, they feel that a lot of things don't add up, including the stab marks found on her back. Over the years, they've tried to find the truth about what happened to Ellen, as well as get the suicide ruling overturned. They obtained her autopsy report, and different members of law enforcement, lawyers, and medical experts have been hired by them to review her case. Quote, esteemed forensic pathologist, Cyril Wecht, who disputed the single bullet theory of John F. Kennedy's assassination, and Henry Lee, the forensic scientist who testified on behalf of O.J. Simpson's defense, both authored independent reports questioning the manner of Ellen's death. And they both felt it was homicide. In 2017, pathologist Wayne Ross was hired to examine a fragment of Ellen's spinal cord. His professional opinion was that, quote, Ellen's cranial cavity had been punctured, which would have likely rendered her unconscious and prevented her from stabbing herself so many times. And that was a quote from Oxygen.com. So kind of validating what I had mentioned earlier, not that I'm a pathologist or any kind of expert, but just someone who read things and realized things didn't add up or make sense. For someone to stab themselves that many times without falling unconscious before they could do that just does not make sense. And the fact of where some of her stabbings were located and puncture wounds were located, first of all, why someone would choose or how someone would stab themselves in the back or the neck is just odd anyway. On top of being able to stay awake and continue to do that, especially with deep wounds, it, they just both were like, this does not make sense. And this pathologist, Wayne Ross, was like, yeah, her spi- spinal cord and cranial cavity had been so punctured that that would likely have not been possible for her to even continue to stay awake to do this this many times. So another expert, Gregory McDonald, a Montgomery County coroner and the dean of the School of Health Science at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, found himself torn between suicide and homicide because of the difference in some of Ellen's stab wounds. Some of her stab wounds were shallow, which he said would typically represent hesitation, and he said usually with a murder, there's not really hesitation, but with a suicide, there might be. So that's that was why he was kind of leaning towards suicide. But then other wounds of hers were deeper. There were also punctures and a gash on her forehead, 
which he said would typically represent an attack, which made him lean towards homicide. She had also been stabbed through her clothing, which he also said wouldn't be typical in a suicide and would more likely be seen in a homicide. In 2018, the Greenberg's former lawyer, Larry Krasner, was sworn in as Philadelphia's district attorney. They asked him to reopen the investigation, but he referred the case to the state attorney general's office to avoid a conflict of interest, which I think was the smart thing to do because even if it had been reopened, I feel like that would have been used as an excuse to potentially close it again and or get in the way of the whole reinvestigation. In 2019, the case was open and closed again, remaining a suicide, completely contradicting the 2011 report that stated that nothing regarding suicide was found on Ellen's computer. The attorney general's office now said there was new evidence from her computer. Allegedly, the search history included, quote, suicide methods, quote, quick suicide, and, quote, painless suicide. How would it not be there if the computer was searched in 2011, but is suddenly allegedly there in 2019? Your guess is as good as mine. I was like, if they actually searched the computer in 2011, which, assuming they did because they put in reports that they did, How would nothing be found then and then years later there's stuff there? Or did they not look far back enough? And who knows if that was even Ellen making the searches on her computer? Just saying. So according to Ellen's family, the attorney general also never reached out to them or their experts that they had brought in during the investigation. In 2021, Joshua and Sandra Greenberg filed a civil suit against the medical examiner's office and the pathologist that conducted the autopsy on Ellen. And this is all a quote from the Inquirer. Quote, In the suit, the Greenbergs seek to have the manner of their daughter's death changed back to homicide or undetermined, which would allow for an investigation to be reopened and a wrongful death or misconduct lawsuit to be filed against the city. The city then filed an appeal stating that, quote, the law makes clear that a medical examiner can be wrong as to the manner of death, yet cannot be compelled to change it. Like, what the actual fuck is that? I'm sorry. So, a medical examiner can be wrong but they don't have to change it if later on they they realize they were wrong or no one can go in and change it if they were wrong. Am I misreading that? That does not make sense to me. The civil trial was then placed on hold. And one final thing to note, as mentioned earlier on in the case, information had been disputed regarding a building attendant being with Sam when he broke down the door to the apartment. So we're going to get into that now because during disposition in the civil suit, the pathologist stated that before he changed his ruling from homicide to suicide, he had met with members of the police department and district attorney's office. 
He said police told him a doorman was with Sam Goldberg when he broke the door down. He then said that this played in part of his decision. So it kind of not only influenced, but he like weighed that in with his decision. However, the doorman signed an affidavit saying he actually wasn't with Sam Goldberg and video surveillance also backed this up. So according to the doorman, he was not there. And in reference to another article, the person was mentioned as a building attendant. So assuming this is referencing the doorman and not someone else, but According to surveillance, there was also not someone with him. So, whether the door was broken into by Sam has also been questioned. Photos from the crime scene show a door latch still attached to the door and the frame, meaning the door wasn't broken, it was still intact. My question is, can't they see that on surveillance as well or no? Like that he was trying to kick the door in or that he did kick the door in or slam the door in whatever he's he did to break the door in can't they see that on video or were they just checking lobby surveillance and seeing he wasn't walking with someone upstairs and the doorman remained downstairs i would love to know those answers in 2022 a second civil suit was filed by the greenbergs against members of the emmy's office the da's office and the police department this is ongoing And as of this recording, the true manner of death of Ellen Greenberg is unknown. So, there is a petition to the Attorney General to reopen Ellen's case. And I will provide that in not only our show notes, but on the Facebook page. It's a change.org petition. And there are so many signatures on it already, but... The more the merrier when it comes to petitions like these and making movement in cases and overturning something or trying to overturn something that was already established because we all know from listening to cases like these and listening to true crime podcasts or watching true crime documentaries or reading articles about cases that it's not that easy to overturn something once a decision is made. And I think not only does Ellen deserve to have a full investigation as to what happened to her because there are definitely sketchy things surrounding her death, but her family definitely deserves answers regarding what happened to their daughter. And just so they can have some kind of peace of mind with the situation, considering they have not been told really anything with this entire case, which is completely awful. So aside from that, please take that as your call to action. Again, it takes two seconds to sign a petition like this, and it's just so impactful and so important. Aside from that, I don't think I have anything else to talk about at the end of this episode. I know it was a shorter one. There was a lot of information jam-packed into about a 30-minute podcast, but I feel like I covered all the important facts that I could find regarding Ellen's case and the ongoing fight for her and her family. A case like this really makes you wonder 
how much information is actually being withheld from the public or how thick those blinders are that we're actually on potentially during an investigation because not saying that tons of mistakes were made, but it just, in a case like this, it just doesn't make sense with there being so many red flags and so many what the fucks and how would this be possible for someone to do and signs of potential homicide that it makes you wonder how they leaned towards and met that decision and made that decision and especially coming from a civilian's point of view where we don't have maybe the background knowledge of a forensic expert or someone in law enforcement or someone who deals with crime scenes like this a BAU I it makes me wonder like why am I thinking this way and why was this why were certain things overlooked by a group of people and then like other experts are brought in by the family and they're saying the same thing a civilian saying so it just makes me, it makes my brain tick. And I want everyone to comment on this week's episode. Write in, send me DMs, send me emails, comment on the Instagram pictures, tell me what you think about Ellen's case. I feel so sorry for her family that the fact that I'm nobody in regards to Ellen and I'm feeling this passionate about her case and devastated over what happened to her and the family not knowing I cannot I'm tearing up thinking about it I cannot imagine what they're going through and what they've been dealing with since 2011 when they lost their daughter and the fact that they've been kept so out of the loop and are just expected to accept it is just heartbreaking so I really hope ultimately that they find the answers that they're looking for because they definitely deserve them as does Ellen. And without further ado, because I'm getting a little choked up here and rambling, I believe. Without further ado, I will get into the spiel. You can find Crime Colts and Coffee on Instagram where I post pictures of the coffee reviewed, the case for this week. We have the highlights tab there with past cases, past coffee reviews, any important information regarding the podcast. The link tree is also in the bio. It has many of the listening platforms that this podcast is on. If you go to the Facebook page at Crime Colts and Coffee, that's where I put resources, photos, links, call to action, all that good stuff. And make sure this week you definitely check out that call to action. Go to the show notes where you're listening to this podcast. Click the link and please, please put your name on that petition. If you have a listener story or case suggestion like Kaylee did for us this week, thank you Kaylee again for suggesting Ellen's case. I had heard of her case before, but I never did a deep dive into it, so I'm so glad I did and that I now know all this information about Ellen and her story. If you have a case suggestion or a listener story, send it my way. You can email me at crimecoltsandcoffee at gmail.com or DM me at Crime Colts and Coffee on Instagram. I love getting all these case suggestions, but again, we are lacking in listener stories, people, so send them in. 
And if you like the podcast, if you enjoy listening, you can show me you do by leaving a rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, any listening platform that will allow you to do so. And if you can't do that on any listening platform of your choice, you can like, you can follow, you can subscribe, and that will let you know when new episodes come out each week. And until next week, here's your homework. Sign that petition. Listen to another episode of Crime, Colts, and Coffee podcast. Maybe go back to your favorite. Just don't go too far back because the beginning was very cringeworthy. And if you would so love to do, give One of Us is Lying a watch on Peacock or check out the podcast that I recommended called Against the Odds. Give it a good scan through the seasons and see which one you want to listen to. You will not be disappointed. And until next week, bye. regarding this case and our resources follow us at crime cults and coffee on instagram and facebook